Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 9th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British Prime Minister has written to the leader and deputy leader of the DUP. The Times newspaper has seen this letter and in an extract published this morning, Theresa May spells out how Northern Ireland could remain aligned to the European Union while a border down the Irish Sea separates it from the rest of the United Kingdom. Although the Prime Minister says she doesn't feel it will be necessary to divide the UK. The letter refers to a backstop to a backstop, meaning there would be a UK-wide backstop, but if Britain was to leave the customs union, Northern Ireland would remain unless or until a solution is found for the Irish border. In her letter, Prime Minister May says, I am clear that I could not accept there being any circumstances or conditions in which that backstop to the backstop, which would break up the UK customs territory would come into force. The problem here is that while she's insisting it'll never come into force, it will be written into the withdrawal agreement. This has raised alarm bells for the DUP with Arlene Foster saying it appears that the Prime Minister is wedded to the idea of a border down the Irish Sea with Northern Ireland in the EU single market regulatory regime. We're joined by the Minister for European Affairs and Local TD Helen McEntee. Good morning to you and thanks morning, for joining Michael. us. Have you had sight of this letter from Mrs May or has this been part of the negotiations with the UK? So I think maybe for myself, um, it's probably not. And, and I don't think it's a good idea to comment too much on what is and what appears to be a leaked letter. So I've, I've only seen exactly what you have seen yourself and what has been written in the Times. But this is obviously a conversation between Theresa May and the DUP. Negotiations are ongoing, as you've said, and a lot of discussion in the last number of weeks has been particularly focused on, if you want to say, a new development or the, the, the idea that there could be a backstop to a backstop so that there could be a second layer to what has already been committed to in December where the Prime Minister said that there would be a legally operable backstop that it would ensure that we avoid a hard border in all circumstances on the island of Ireland and that this would apply unless and until the challenges there obviously you have outlined yourself and that there is differing of opinion as to what that means for Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK so what the Prime Minister and I think Michel Barnier and his task force have been working on is to try and ensure, and, and this is something that we we want to happen as well, ensure that this backstop is never used. And by looking at a whole of UK customs space, um, so that Northern Ireland and the whole of the UK would remain within customs territory in a customs space. And I think what the rest of the EU27 want to see is that this would be some source of a stepping stone to the future relationship then it means um, that we are working in that direction and we have been working in that direction. But there are obviously alarm bells from the EU27 side when you talk about that because um, 
if you are a member of the European Union, there are obviously advantages to being part of the single market, the customs union, the access to the market that you have. But I think as well, the fact that you are part of a union that holds very high standards in terms of workers' rights, in terms of um, trying to ensure that we have clean food, water, air, um, and all of these standards in place. If you are not a member of the European Union, if you are saying that you are leaving the customs union on the single market, then there has to be a level playing field. You can't have those same advantages while at the same time a possible threat to divergence in any of those regulations I've just mentioned. So you have concerns on both sides, I think, throughout all of these negotiations and whilst Theresa May and her team and what Michel Barnier and his team are trying to do at the moment and, and talks are as intensified, I think, as they have been. They're trying to address all of these concerns on either side. But maybe just to go back to the Irish position and the backstop, any suggestion that the backstop could be in any way revoked or could be in any way stopped by one side in terms of the UK deciding it no longer must apply is, is not something that we would agree to. And we've heard suggestions in the last week or so that that would be the case. And, and, you know, we don't have many red lines. We've never really insisted on too much other than what has already been committed to. And this is something that we are insisting on. And is it your expectation that uh, there will be a backstop to a backstop? Well, this is what we are looking at essentially at the moment and what we're talking about is that, as I said, a stepping stone so that when the transition or when the UK leaves on the 29th of March next year, when we go into that transition phase, that you are then looking at developing, um, I suppose, a, a shared custom space, but something that will move into the future relationship. So there is only so much that you can discuss in terms of a future relationship before a country leaves. They have to be, a, as, as it's called, a third party, no longer a member of the European Union before you can get into detail as to what that future relationship will look like but you can have an outline and I suppose what we are trying to do is outline in as much detail as possible Uh, and I think this is something that will help Theresa May as well obviously explain Mm. to her own colleagues within Westminster whether they're for or against what's being talked about that they understand the direction that we are going in and certainly that's something we want to know as well ourselves And, and from our own point of view what we want is a close relationship what we want is a relationship with the UK that is so close that we never have to invoke this backstop and that moving forward we can continue to trade so it's not just north-south that our businesses east and west have as little disruption as possible and that those who, particularly our agricultural community, our farming community, those who trade with the UK on a daily basis, that there is little disruption to their lives, to their businesses, um, that we can move forward and obviously still remain um, close with our partners in many other ways. But you believe, Minister, that this agreement, if it is agreed, will be the solution to moving in that direction? And is it your understanding that Mrs May uh, is of the same belief? From our own part, I, I think this is something obviously that we, we are looking at and that we think could work. Um, and I think it, it, the same is of the, the 27 member states and Michel Barnier. We have given him um, the ability to negotiate on our behalf and this is the direction that he has taken. And I think he has tried to be as flexible and as imaginative as possible within the framework of the negotiating directives that the 27 member mm. states have given him. And I think Theresa May is doing the same. And I think in order to... But just, just, solution, just to be clear... I, I think there, a, a landing spot mm. is there and I think we can see it. And it is what you are talking about. It is what we are talking about here. And it, shared it, you, you, you hope that it will never be invoked. But the uh, assurance, the insurance policy, if you like, is that there would be a border down the Irish Sea. 
Well, the insurance policy or the mechanism is what we have already agreed, and that is that there would be a full alignment um, in areas linked to the single market and the customs union on the island of Ireland. But that means, in effect, a a border down the Irish Sea, Minister, does it? Well, what it means is that there would be full alignment in both of those areas, and what we know already... But in achieving that, that, Minister, does it mean that the border between the United Kingdom and the European Union would be down the Irish Sea? Well, I don't think that we're talking about any kind of a border here because what you already have um, is alignment in many areas, north and south. That is Yes, but under this insurance policy, Minister, under this insurance policy, which would mean a backstop for Northern Ireland, does that mean a border down the Irish Sea? No, it doesn't mean a border down the Irish Sea because what we're talking about is developing... Um, as I said, alignment and areas of regulation that are already there or developing uh, platforms to do this that are already there, north and south and east and west. We know that there are already differences. But if they're, not, if they're not there east and west, okay. Minister, if they're not there east and west, uh, then we have this insurance policy. And if that insurance policy is invoked, does that mean a border down the Irish Sea? No, it doesn't mean a border down the Irish Sea. What we have agreed to, and I think what the Prime Minister has agreed to, is looking at what is already there in Northern Ireland, looking at the the structures that are already there, where we have alignment on our island already, north and south, where we have connectedness between our electricity markets, with its health, with its tourism, with its health and and welfare. Mm, That's Um, north-south, but what about east-west, Minister? But this already exists. So if we're talking about changes east and west, what the Prime Minister has given a commitment is that there would be no regulatory divergence, that there would be no changes east and west. So on the island of the UK, um, there would be no changes in terms of their alignment to the single market and the customs union if that were to be invoked. So again, this is, I suppose, a conversation. But that's the the UK, that's the the UK-wide backstop that you're talking about, Minister, is it? The UK-wide backstop is that there would be no divergence in yes. terms of so, the all-island customs base. So, so, so what about the backstop to the UK-wide backstop? Uh, in other words, if the United Kingdom decides to go its own way, then you're into the final phase of this insurance policy, which would be the backstop to the backstop. And does that not mean a border down the Irish Sea? If we get to that stage, and I hope that we never get to that stage... What we are talking about is ensuring that the commitments that were given last December to make sure that we have no hard border on the island of Ireland and that we protect the peace process, that that is ensured. But what we have been doing over the past number of months and what Michel Barnier has been okay. doing... I have answered your question and if you'd let me explain in terms of the Irish backstop. But, but I'm asking, but, but Minister, I, I, for, for, for our listeners and for people in the DUP in Northern Ireland, I'd ask you to answer the question directly. Does it mean a border down the Irish Sea? The backstop that we have agreed, the Prime Minister has committed to this and any commitments that she has given to the DUP are commitments that she has given to the DUP and I think that she will hold or stick to her word. So the only way that there would be a border down the Irish Sea is that if there were to be changes on the island of the UK, on 
that they would change, that they would diverge in terms of regula- in terms of regulations, and that there would be any other checks. And that's what we Mrs. May is, and that's what Mrs. May is referring to in her letter when she talks about a backstop to the backstop, so that the backstop for the UK falls apart, uh, uh, and they make those changes that you're talking about. There is a backstop that will remain in place for Northern Ireland, and that will mean a border down the Irish Sea. Well, again, what we know is that there are already a number of checks east and west. We know that there are already changes and differences in Northern Ireland in comparison to the rest of the UK. So Mm. what we're talking about is a backstop and an insurance policy to ensure that we have no hard border on the island of Ireland, that any changes east and west would be minimal. And I think, again, it is... Theresa May that has given the commitment to the DUP and I don't think it's really for me to comment on that but the position that the UK takes as a whole if that were to come into play she has been very clear that there would not be this divergence or certain change but again we have to go back to the fact that both sides are working towards the basis that this would never be invoked that this would never happen and this is why so much effort has gone into and is going into a shared custom space that you would have a second layer, as you have said, that would be a stepping stone and that would be possibly a precursor to a future relationship. And this is the space that we're in now. This is, I think, the landing zone that we're trying to get to. Um, And really the biggest challenge, I think, is ensuring that once we get there, once the concerns are addressed, so whether it's the level playing field from the EU27 or whether it is those concerns um, from the UK side as to a, a custom shared space, that the Prime Minister is able to pass it through as Minister, that the 27 other member states are able to pass it through their respective governments and that we're able to do this in time before they leave on the 29th of March. And obviously, mm. given the fact that we're now into the beginning of November, um, the time, is, as I've said before, is, is getting shorter and shorter for them. OK, and what's your expectation at uh, this stage, Minister? There's uh, still talk, uh, if not hope, of a, a full EU Council summit this month, or if not, perhaps a, a meeting of uh, the 27 countries in the European Union, bar uh, the UK, obviously. Well, what we know is that we have a European Council meeting on the 13th and 14th of December, and that is set in stone, and that will take place. But whether or not we have a special summit, as had been discussed at the last meeting, is yet to be decided. There won't be a meeting unless we have something to discuss, unless we have something to engage with the UK on and possibly to sign off on. The, the likelihood that that will be in the next week, obviously now moving into the weekend, um, is less and less likely. But obviously if there was to be um, a special summit, it would most likely be uh, in about two weeks' time. And that's obviously, mm. if we can achieve that, I think both sides are working as hard as we can to get to that step. Because if we could negotiate this, if we could reach an agreement before Christmas, before that December summit, then it would again allow... Um, the parliament, the government to, to go back and to try and to um, ratify this within their, their, their member states but also it would give I think business and enterprise and, and um, those who are, are looking at this every day and, and wondering how this will impact on their business, it would give them an opportunity before going into the new year to mm-hmm. plan in as much as they can and, and prepare for as much as they can and that's obviously but, what we want. But if it's not possible to bring uh, the 28 countries together just yet, there may be a, a summit of the 27 countries, is it? Well, again, that's something to be decided. I mean, that's not something that was discussed at the last uh, council meeting. It would be a discussion among the 28 
current member mm. states, um, obviously with the anticipation that you would have reached a conclusion, if not the next summit will be on the 13th and 14th of December. And really we have to aim towards uh, reaching an agreement then, if not before then. Are you confident? I, I am confident in, in that. I'm, I'm optimistic that we can. I think that the landing, as I said, the landing zone and, and mm. where we need to get to is in sight. Um, I think we, we have an idea and we are very um, much more clearer as to how we can get there now. But obviously there are complexities. The, the government and the parliament within the UK, um, there are complex divisions among them. Um, and obviously we need to, to be able to, we, we need to know that the Prime Minister, whatever deal is reached between herself and the, the task force, that she will be able to pass it in Westminster and obviously that's uh, that's not going to be a certainty. Okay, well I, I think those uh, statements that you've just made are a little bit clearer to the rest of us after reading some of uh, Theresa May's uh, comments in that correspondence uh, to the DUP this morning. But thank you Minister for joining us here on the programme as Thanks, always. Michael. That's uh, Fine Gael TD in me these telemacking who's uh, um, the Minister uh, of State for European Affairs. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, uh, nurses are wondering if uh, they should uh, take any holidays uh, this Christmas or go to work and uh, get the sick better. David Hughes, Deputy General Secretary with uh, the INMO, is on the line. This uh, follows uh, the comments from uh, the Taoiseach uh, this week when he, he spoke about uh, the hospitals in this country closing for uh, 7 out of 12 days, as has been the case for the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, So what chances, uh, David Hughes, of your members uh, caring for people instead of swanning off on holidays? Well, uh, they don't swan off on holidays. Nurses are rostered to work every day of the year, including Christmas Day, and their rosters are drawn up long before now to cover the Christmas period. Uh, Nurses respond to the activity in the hospital and they're rostered to be there in the numbers that are required. Unfortunately, very often, they now work short because of uh, staff shortages and failure to recruit and retain staff. So they they are working over Christmas. They do work over Christmas, and they've always been doing it. Uh, I'm sure, like me, when you were in primary school, you'd come back after the holidays and be asked to write an essay about what you did. If uh, the nurses were to write an essay in January about what they did during the Christmas holidays, uh, what would they be writing about? Well, many of them would be writing that they had worked over the Christmas, including Christmas Day. Uh, Obviously, Christmas Day itself has a lower level of activity. I don't think even patients want to be in hospital on Christmas Day. So Christmas Day is a lower level of activity. But nowadays, the hospitals don't close down to the same extent that they did in the past because they simply can't. They're already full. So the nurses are rostered to care for the patients who are in the hospital already and who can't be released. Uh, The only thing that may slow down is the level of elective activity. But that's not necessarily a function of the number of nurses. That's a function of, you know, the scheduling of of that type of procedure. And again, you know, people don't necessarily want to have those procedures in the run-up to Christmas and be in Christmas over, over, or be in hospital over Christmas. But this is a bit of a non-story, really, because the rostering of staff is aimed at having adequate numbers of nurses to look after the patients who are already in hospital. That is done. Uh, The problem is that there are so many vacancies that there's a high dependency on agency nursing. And it's very hard to get agency nurses now uh, because of the overall shortage of nurses in midwives in the country. So it's a bit of a non-story when it comes to nursing. They do work 
and everybody would know that they that nurses are scheduled to work. Well, there is a story, though. There, there is a story, and I, I think the one we're talking about may be a distraction to the story, uh, and the story is contained in an internal HSE analysis of overcrowding of hospitals, which was also reported on this week, uh, and that's found uh, that the delay in providing an additional $40 million in government funding wasn't agreed until December last year, uh, that uh, the recruitment and retainment of uh, staff uh, was a, a failure to agree that it impacted during the winter of 2017 stroke 18 and insufficient bed capacity uh, on top of uh, those problems with a, a surge in people uh, attending hospitals. Uh, so uh, there's a story there about a, a problem that has been neglected. In the meanwhile, we're talking about something uh, that uh, doesn't exist as you contest. Well, it's a, it's a diversion, really, to raise this or to try and blame staff for problems which are way beyond their control. In reality, nurses, it's a demand-led service. Like, the patients are treated, they attend hospital, and they have to be cared for. The nurse or the number of nurses don't control that. They don't control the flow of patients into or out of a hospital or into or out of community services. That's determined by medical need, mm. by the diagnosis of the patient, and the scheduling of, of nurses to uh, to care for those patients is a rostering issue, which is done all of the time, and the numbers are appropriate, or they try to get them to be appropriate to the level of care that's required. The big barrier is, is getting uh, enough staff at this stage because there are huge staff shortages. In terms of the um, the management of the system and the, the, the funding and all of that, mm. we are still waiting for the workforce plan. In other words, the overall number of nurses that the HSE would apply or the hospitals would apply uh, for this year, 2018, and it's now November. We should have had the plan for 2018 in November 17, and it hasn't yet been produced. So there are problems in the HSE, but uh, yeah, they're, well, the, 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 they're the, at a much higher level than nursing. The winter plan is uh, to be published today. Additional funding will be provided and uh, announced today. But there is uh, that criticism that you're voicing now that all of this should have been done earlier. Uh, if I remember correctly, there's been terrible overcrowding in January. January last year, I, I think, uh, and uh, the minister at the time on holidays, people wondering why he was on holidays when there was such a, a crisis, uh, uh, which he was uh, responsible for for or in a, a department that he was responsible for. Uh, and I was asking you about writing essays after the holidays. If the politicians uh, were to write essays, they'd probably say they were working in their constituency, but they certainly wouldn't be saying that they were in Leinster House for at least four weeks. I don't think they would. I think uh, there's an irony in that. And I think they'll knock off in or around the 15th of December and not come back for a month. So uh, to be pointing fingers at people who will be actually working during that period is a bit rich. All right. Uh, and uh, what do you think of Leo Radker? Oh, well, Leo has a job to do. He's the teacher of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish that uh, he would stop pointing the finger at people who are struggling to provide good services uh, to the people who need it uh, and who themselves are not properly respected or rewarded for what they do. All right. We'll leave it there, Dave. Thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dave Hughes, Deputy General Secretary of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we've been talking recently about uh, the recent successes at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda and how a hospital that has been notorious uh, for overcrowding has turned the situation on its head and 
become one of the most efficient hospitals in terms of people being treated on trolleys in this country. Even better news this week is the extension of the emergency department in Drogheda. This is undoubtedly welcomed by all and Labour Party Senator Jed Nash is with us uh, this morning. But you do have some concerns about this. We do, yeah. I'm really pleased, of course, that um, the uh, emergency department is um, now essentially operational, the extension. Um, I worked very hard during my own so spell at the latter part of the last government to secure resources for the new beds, the new emergency department that has addressed some of the overcrowding issues that the hospital has become synonymous with. And the staff, as we all know, are working really, really hard under very difficult circumstances to try to treat people in the best possible fashion, in the best possible environment and move people through the hospital, get them well and get them home. Uh, I was alarmed this week um, to find out that the original plans for an additional x-ray room in the emergency department have now been ditched uh, by HSE estates, by the people in the HSE who manage the properties uh, of the HSE. And um, the fact of the matter is, Michael, this will mean that, in essence, the emergency department will be flying on one wing. Uh, There's one uh, x-ray room at the moment that deals with a massive 53,000 images every year. I mean, to put that in context, uh, Midwest Regional Hospital in Limerick deals with, I think, about 48,000, but they've got two x-ray rooms. Cork University Hospital, I understand it, deals with about 42,000. Again, they've got two x-ray rooms. And the general standard and best practice suggests that there should be two x-ray rooms in a facility of this nature, because if you don't, you know, get the diagnostics right, Mm. clearly that leads to overcrowding in emergency departments and people are waiting to be diagnosed to understand what the nature of their problem is, the problem that they reported ED with in the first place. And then they're either, you know, moved home um, uh, uh, for some follow-up, perhaps in outpatients, or they're moved upstairs Mm. to one of the um, existing beds or the 83 beds that were um, included in the plan that we passed. And you raised this as an issue yesterday in uh, the Senate uh, uh, with the Minister. What did the Minister say? That's right. Well, the the Minister gave me a kind of stock response that was clearly written by Department of Health officials with some contribution, I'm sure, from the HSE. And they said uh, that uh, in early 2019 the emergency department will be fully operational and there will be kind of enhanced radiological services. Now, Mm. I'm not reassured by that because what they uh, did was avoid answering the direct question, will there be a new x-ray room? The x-ray room that everybody understood would be there in this facility. They said an Um, extension to radiological services is anticipated by early 2019. But from speaking to well-placed people who know more about uh, these kinds of services than I do, uh, they're not reassured uh, that this is a commitment to deliver what was originally promised. Um, everybody was operating on the understanding that there would be a new x-ray room and Mm. my understanding of this is that uh, literally a couple of days before the bank holiday weekend uh, late October um, estates and the bean counters the Mm. accountants in the HSE decided that they would pull this and my fear is that they pull this based on cost implications this is a project that costs about 20 million euros uh, um, and the best information I have suggests that a new x-ray room would cost a total of 1 million euros that's 5% of the overall project Are you not jumping the gun a little bit because uh, I mean, there's nothing to suggest that that is the case. You've asked the question. You've been told that radiology services will be extended early next year. Uh, uh, I presume you're not suggesting that the uh, facility shouldn't have opened uh, until they were ready to put these services in place. Nobody's suggesting that. Mm. My my concern is that there's going to be an additional 5% year-on-year increase um, of people going through Mm. ED with a newly expanded service. And 
I haven't been reassured from what I've been told since. I mean, uh, I know that this programme has asked the HSE for clarification about that. I don't know if that clarification has arrived. It's a very straightforward question. Mm. Will the new x-ray room be provided? Because the difficulty is, even if you're saying, right, in the future there will be enhanced radiological services, Mm. what it means is then retrofitting a new large x-ray room with all the attendant equipment into a department that's already been Mm. built. And that's going to be extremely difficult because I think one of the important things to know about this Mm. is that where the current x-ray room is, clearly there's a control room. So that's where obviously the radiographers and radiologists work and the expert technicians to actually look at the images and to you know to deal with, with all the, the, the equipment. Um, so obviously the best thing to do would be to put another x-ray room right beside that because you're actually driving efficiencies there. You're saving in terms of cost because you've got the same control room managing well, two x-ray I, I, rooms. So I, I, I won't argue with you. So uh, I mean, may, may, maybe you're right and uh, 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 maybe otherwise. I don't know. I mean, you, you are right, certainly, in saying that uh, we did ask the HSE for a statement on this several days ago when uh, you brought it to our attention. That uh, response hasn't been forthcoming as yet and we were in contact uh, with the HSE this morning. We were in contact with a, a spokesperson uh, for the minister uh, in the hope uh, that they could provide us uh, with a, a transcript from your interaction yesterday because uh, the website, the Oireachtas website hasn't uh, been updated uh, for the Shannon contributions uh, from yesterday. Uh, there is uh, a an interaction that took place between Imelda Munster uh, the day before yesterday and the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach promised a a written response from the Minister uh, in relation to the same concerns that you're raising today and then there's uh, that uh, written uh, explanation that you received saying that uh, radiology services would be extended early in 2019 but uh, as yet we're talking about a a fear Uh, it's a perception as such rather than something tangible. Well it, it, this this is this is um, information that you know uh, I've garnered from several mm-hmm. people, and this stacks up, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had this independently verified, if you'd like to put it like that. Um, you know, there are lots of stakeholders involved in organising the development of the new emergency department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tenderers, those who received the tender were ready to go. Um, all of the stakeholders involved were of the distinct impression that this is going to take place and suddenly the horns were drawn in a couple of weeks ago and uh, knowing how um, health politics if I can call it that and decisions are made in the HSE it leads me to believe that um, this uh, plan has been ditched or at the very least shelved so it's our job now to try to prevail upon the HSE to convince them of the necessity of doing this to make sure that the hospital can to use the words of Leo Varadkar in a different context this week operate at full whack uh, at every possible time. I mean, there needs to be, you know, two additional radiographers working twenty four seven. Um, you know, two two shifts, mm. separate shifts, to support the work that's going to have to take place in the emergency department. Actually, as I Everybody's understand it, they pleased. work. Their shifts are twenty four hours. As I understand it, yeah, twenty four seven. Of course, there yeah. always mm-hmm. has to be radiographers mm-hmm. there. No, but an individual works a twenty four hour shift. This is. Yeah. That, that's 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 the case, um, and so obviously they'll sleep during that shift. Uh, and if they're called on, then they have to come out and work. And but you can imagine how busy that is. Because we all hours, know how yeah. busy the emergency department is in Our Lady of Lords Hospital. And the, the critical point here is that it's not just good enough that myself and other Oireachtas members are simply talking about this. Mm. We need to get action on it, and I'm prepared to pursue this to the nth until such time as we secure commitment from the HSE that this is done. Because that's the original plan. That's everybody's understanding. And it must be delivered on. It's not too late to. Um, to revisit this because what we can't do is actually 
retrofit an X-ray room into a, an already built emergency department because the complexity of that would be very difficult and that would impact on the work that everybody does in the hospital and impact on patient patient mm. care and the number of patients going through. Um, and what is it you're suggesting? Uh, I mean, if your fears are founded and uh, this second X-ray room isn't made available, are you talking about a potentially dangerous situation or one that's less efficient? Well, I'm not qualified to say that it would be dangerous and the last thing I want to do is set off alarm bells mm-hmm. in people's minds. The concern that I have is that lots of really good work um, occurred over the last few years with you know, politicians like myself, um, staff in the hospital, senior management, yeah. um, health department officials and the HSE but to it, extend the hospital to make sure that, that our overcrowding... It would be a scenario that would be less efficient rather than but, dangerous, but, but, isn't but, it, but, in, that, it that, in that I mean, it will move... The, the, the hospital will be more efficient than it is now, yeah. but not as efficient as it might be. Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, there are 83 new beds. Many of them are open and have been opened uh, this year and over the last few months, and that's very, very welcome. Um, but, you know, you need the diagnostic equipment operating at full whack to make sure that people aren't sitting in chairs waiting to be treated, lying on trolleys waiting to be transitioned upstairs to a bed. And everything that the hospital does and everything that the emergency department does revolves around the ability of staff to be able to take those images for radiologists and other experts to mm. look at them to diagnose what the problem mm. is in the first place. There's nobody it, who goes it, into ED without maybe, actually maybe getting it's a, not an X-ray done. Given the capacity that there is in the Lourdes, is it possible that it's not needed, that it's not necessary because it is now a, a flagship, a, a model for hospitals around the country in terms of solving the trolley crisis? Well, two things to say about that is, and I'll go back to the figures I quoted mm. earlier on, um, there are you know at least two hospitals I'm aware of that take fewer images every year. They've got two mm. X-ray rooms. So this has gone from being one of the scale. worst, possibly the worst hospital in the country, to uh, one of, of the best. Yeah. In terms of overcrowding. Mm. And that, that's a good thing. And I wanted to stay mm. there. Yeah. Um, and I think the people of Louth, Meath, Catherine Monaghan, mm. and North County But it's, now one of, it's one of the best hospitals uh, and it has this additional capacity. It, it, does it need more? Well, well, it's got additional capacity in ED because there are additional bays, so additional ability, you know, ability mm. to treat people. Mm-hmm. But there will be waiting, of course, because the view is that the X-ray room is not just at capacity but over capacity based on a very straightforward analysis of what other hospitals do and the number of images and the throughput every year. So, you know, I return to my original mm. point. There's no point in actually developing the marriage department and doing all the things that everybody wants to see happen in the Lord's Hospital if we get these capacity issues. That means that some of the good work that's mm-hmm. been done in recent years could in some way be compromised um, because people aren't being move through the system quickly enough. That's okay. not good for patients, it's not good for staff, it's not good for anybody. All right, thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning to you, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Pat is one of those who's listening in and he's not a happy camper this morning, Michael. He's fed up listening about Brexit. It's not just on this station, it's on every station, he says, and he wonders whether the Irish government is doing enough. There you go. On the same topic, John thinks Theresa May is making a mistake. She thinks, he thinks that she wants a way of backing out of leaving the EU and she wants her bread buttered on both sides, so to speak. He thinks she's looking for an excuse that because of the decision that was made, she's now realised it's not really uh, such a good idea to leave after all. Maybe so, but uh, it appears as though, uh, at least to some of us, it appears as though the Prime Minister is 
intent on leaving, uh, but uh, not uh, a United Kingdom that would leave, uh, that Northern Ireland would remain in the Customs Union. Deirdre was in touch about the x-ray situation at Our Lady of Lords Hospital and feels that uh, a second facility is needed. Deirdre mentioned as well that she's from Kells, was at the meeting to save Navin Hospital last night. A lot of people in the area worried about the future of the e- A&E in that hospital. I've loads of comments in relation to Navin I'll get to them in a minute. Another listener just sticking to the Lords Hospital says, why extend the accident and emergency unit in the hospital if you don't have the extra services in place also is that not going to be a waste of money okay well uh, that is uh, the question uh, and it's one that uh, remains unanswered as we speak uh, perhaps uh, we'll get a, a response uh, before the end of uh, the program today but hold that for thought for a moment uh, let's uh, talk about cyber bullying now and we all know that uh, school children are quite often bullied online but 10% of teachers have been the victim of bullying 15% of teachers say they're aware of another teacher who has experienced some form of bullying on the internet in the course of uh, the last 12 years. Uh, this is according to research from DCU and Liam Channeler Challoner is a doctoral researcher at DCU's National Anti-Bullying Research and Resource Centre. He's on the line. Good morning Liam and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. You're recommending that there be more support for teachers put in place. Yeah absolutely. So I, just within yeah, your comment just there so it's the the teachers reported being aware of another teacher being cyberbullied within the last 12 months. Um, so that was just under the 15%. Um, the, yeah, so we're, what we're recommending is due to the prevalence level is that we need more supports for current teachers in schools. So we looked at the teachers' um, online safety behaviour, their own knowledge of prevention and intervention in bullying, and there was a significant gap identified in terms of the level of anti-bullying training and cyberbullying training um, for both peer intervention but also to protect a, a teacher themselves. Um, and we found that teachers still had a, a lack of awareness of how to protect themselves online, so whether that was in implementing privacy tools on their own social networks or how to report content and inter- intervene if there was something posted online about themselves. And in particular, we also... Um, so pupils in, in particular were recording um, teachers in a classroom environment or posting pictures about them onto social media. And a lot of those issues seem to relate around classroom management or conflicts within the classroom. So we need more training on classroom management styles, particularly on kind of supportive instruction, empathic instruction and building relationships to try and prevent that form of behaviour. And then finally... Uh, one of the recommendations was for um, what we call cyberphonesis, so allowing a pupil or aiding them to understand the mental health and real-world consequences of their behaviour to kind of foster digital citizenship and try and prevent some of the ne- negative behaviour we mm. see online. Uh, and what are the consequences? Because I, I, I gather if uh, teachers tell you they're being bullied, uh, that they feel intimidated by what's happening on the internet. Uh, and uh, like all forms of bullying, I take it that it impacts on some more than on others. Yeah, it, it, it can. And what we found is a teacher who was, um, we're all aware of the increased um, stress and pressures on a teacher's time and the amount of work that has to be done to deliver a curriculum. Um, so their teachers are already currently quite stressed within that environment. Um, but what we found is a teacher who was victimised was also uh, displaying increased stress levels compared to their non-victimised colleagues. And in particular, um, we looked at some, what we call school climate. Um, and we found 
that teachers who were victimised had lower uh, perceptions of their relationships in and outside of the classroom. Um, they felt that they were more drained in their teaching capacity within a classroom. Um, their kind of school morale was affected and their relationship with, um, in particular, management and um, other teachers. So that did have a, mm. quite a severe impact. But we all, in terms of general victimisation, we know that increased stress and anxiety are something that's commonly seen within a victim. Um, particularly, um, some researchers identified that a lack of trust. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. And, and management and a reduction in, in support-seeking, which isn't something we saw within my own research. There was still um, just about a third, say, of teachers who were victimized by a pupil would go and seek support from management, which was quite a positive outcome to see that we did have that reporting um, happening within a school structure. But it does, it, it can quite severely affect a teacher's working environment. Okay, Liam, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Liam Challoner, a doctoral researcher at DCU's National Anti-Bullying Research and Resource Centre. Now, let's go back uh, to you and more of your comments, more to the point. Marie, what else have you got for us? Yes, some from yesterday, Michael, in relation to Navin Hospital. Uh, Bernadette was in touch and she says that she's been an outpatient at the hospital for the last 10 years and the staff have given her the best of service. She just wants to mention that the hospital serves people not just from Navin but from Drogheda, Monaghan and Cavan and thinks that they should be working to extend it, not to close any part of it down. Uh, Mary from Navin wonders what happened to Navin Hospital. She says that she it used to be a centre of excellence and now it's unbelievable to think that they are talking about closing part of it down. She says that Drogheda Hospital is overcrowded. There are not there are not enough facilities for people in the area and that there needs to be something done to ensure that the two hospitals are there to cater for the people who need it. Okay, well I actually think it would be unbelievable uh, if uh, they weren't talking about uh, downgrading the emergency department uh, because uh, they've been talking about that for about 10 years as best I can remember. On the same topic, Paddy said that Navin Hospital has been very good to him. He said that if the same funding and thought was put into Navin Hospital as was put in everywhere else, then things would be much better off. He says that he is a first responder and he knows how mere seconds can make the difference between life and death. And now they are talking about closing the A&E department. He thinks that if we got one of the these high-ranking experts to lie in the back of an ambulance and find out what patients go through, then they wouldn't be long changing their viewpoint. Uh, well, I think uh, the people uh, who've reported on this uh, would have uh, an expert opinion on these things and uh, they believe in the centralisation of services as uh, I'm sure our caller knows and uh, that uh, you would have full-time uh, 
uh, fully trained consultants working in uh, departments uh, with uh, the backup staff necessary and the equipment necessary and uh, that these centres of excellence would be able to provide the best level of acute care and then you would have smaller hospitals such as Navin uh, where you'd be able to go and get treatments like the treatments that you get in Dundalk uh, that aren't, aren't available in the bigger hospitals. John from Drogheda phoned in about the controversy surrounding hospitals and Christmas holidays and he says, I just want to make a comment about annual leave in the hospitals and their the mm. entitlements of workers. I worked on the ferries for years. When I joined, I knew what I signed up to, what was required of me. Fer- the ferry only ties up for two days in the year at Christmas, uh, Christmas Day and St Stephen's Day and half the crew still have to stay on because it has to be manned and then it's it stops for two weeks once a year and again it still has to be manned. Mm. You know what you sign up for and I think, I do believe it's the same for hospital workers. They know that the chances are they may be required to work over Christmas. They are entitled to the leave of course and they should be given leave but I think they have to accept that they do have to work at Christmas like many other people in all areas of other jobs. It's mm. not just in hospitals where people have to work at Christmas time. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, but the point is, they do know they have to work and they work and uh, they haven't uh, been given out about it. Uh, what has happened is that uh, the Taoiseach has presented us with this scenario which suggests that they're all swanning off on their holidays and leaving mm. people languishing on trolleys, very sick and not getting the care that they need. I know, well, Michael says that he's surprised at Leo Vradkar for his comments, considering his medical background. Mm. And another listener said this yesterday, that he should know above anybody else the hours and the toil that the workers in the healthcare system put in. And he really can't believe his comments, Mm. he says. Another listener was in touch, uh, Margaret, to say, Michael, the HSC took on agency staff at a much higher cost instead of hiring full-time staff in the HSE. As for the Christmas holidays, the people who run the fair deal scheme for nursing homes, are they not on holidays for a week or two as they are civil servants so they wouldn't want to be working over Christmas to get nursing home care through for the discharged good patients. Good point, good point. That's going back to what uh, Senator Colin Burke was saying to us about uh, how he's been told by some nursing homes that the phones fall quiet over the Christmas period. And I think it's as you'd expect that if people are going to be moved in the run-up to Christmas that they would try to do it before Christmas. I mean, you're not going to have somebody moving out of a hospital to a nursing home on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve for that matter. Another listener just phoned in to say, I can't believe uh, the Taoiseach's comments. When they come at a time where people who are working in mm. the healthcare sector are, are already... Um, very annoyed at their working conditions and they feel under pressure and really you should have the leader of the of the country endorsing the hard work that they do and trying to offer them encouragement rather than this kind of put down that they weren't available to work when they were required. Okay. So people are not happy today yeah. about All that. All right, okay. Yeah, well, uh, it continues uh, to make a, a lot of news uh, and uh, indeed uh, it was an issue that was raised over and over again in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Uh, but uh, the Taoiseach uh, standing by his comments as indeed Fine Gael are. All right, we leave it there for the moment. Marie, thanks for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 185715958. Michael, Michael Reed. Reed. 
Now, there is trouble in Fianna Fáil. No surprise, perhaps, uh, that Eamon O'Keeve and uh, Senator Mark Daly have uh, been sanctioned, uh, but I would imagine that it's not good for internal politics within the party. Let's talk with Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and uh, political columnist with uh, the Meath Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Eamon O'Keeve has said he's accepted the decision of of Michal Martin, but how's it going down amongst uh, Fianna Fáil grassroots? Uh, I suppose, Michael, what it really does is underline a bigger kind of a, a grassroots divide within the party, and really it's, it's very neatly embodied by the different positions that uh, are held on one side by Michal Martin at party headquarters and on the other side by Mark Daly and Eamon O'Keefe. Now, Mark Daly and Eamon O'Keefe um, see it as follows. They believe that ultimately Fianna Fáil's whole reason for being is to try and promote Irish unity. It is a Republican party, and it's supposed to do whatever it can to try and stimulate that But they also look at the party rules and they say that actually this case is fairly clear cut, that under Fianna Fáil's internal party rules, they say that any person who is a member of Fianna Fáil, if running for an election, has to run as a Fianna Fáil candidate. Otherwise, they risk disciplinary proceedings. You could have Fianna Fáilers running as independents, uh, fracturing the party vote and all that. So that in itself uh, could result in disciplinary proceedings, all of which means that at the very moment that Sir Kamakinespi joined Fianna Fáil in Northern Ireland, she was always required by party rules to be a Fianna Fáil candidate. So as far as they see it, then what's the issue in them going up north of the border and launching her Fianna Fáil election campaign? She is required by party rules Mm. to do it. Which they did. But just to back up, uh, she was a member of Sinn Féin originally, was she? She was a member of Sinn Féin originally and she was elected to her local authority in Oma in 2014 as a Mm. Sinn Féin member. And then uh, became an independent. Yes, left in in, in, uh, 2016, I believe, became an independent and still serves on Mm. the council as an independent, uh, but in the meantime has become a member of Fianna Fáil and is in fact a member of uh, Fianna Fáil's Art Corner, which is its national executive. And moreover, by the way, they say that Micheál Martin told Sir Kamakinespi at a meeting of the Art Corner in front of a packed room where loads of people could witness it, they say that Micheál Martin told Sir Kamakinespi she would be an election candidate. So okay, so she, she's a member of Fianna Fáil and she's standing for election. So one line of thought is she's a Fianna Fáil candidate uh, and the other line of thought is she's not. Why is that? Yeah, but the other line of thought is, is the position of party headquarters in mm. Martin, which is that they have never made a formal decision to contest elections north of the border and that therefore this is a, a gigantic solo run. And uh-huh. one which is uh, particularly troublesome because uh, as people might know, Fianna Fáil is, is in long ongoing talks with the SDLP about the prospect of a merger or an alliance of some sort and if that was to come through then basically all of the Sinn Féin councillors or candidates would become possibly Fianna Fáil councillors or candidates and that it just messes all of that up but that when when Fianna Fáil are in the moment of of, uh, very sensitive talks with the SDLP about potentially inheriting uh, you know, a massive party organisation north of the border, that the idea of uh, blowing the cover and then recruiting someone who isn't in fact a member of Sinn Féin and announcing that as being your, your giant moment, uh, basically is a giant party run, which is almost an act of gross rebellion because of how much it upsets the plans um, by HQ, which is what ultimately mm. resulted in the disciplinary proceedings uh, against Mark Daly on Wednesday and against Damon O'Queeve yesterday. Okay, because they went north of the border and launched uh, Sorka McInnesby's election campaign as a, a Fianna Fáil candidate. Did they know they were doing wrong as such? 
Well, see, again, this is the whole thing that they don't they don't really necessarily agree that they did any wrong, again, because they're looking at the party rule book and they say that Sir Kamakinespi is required under party rules mm. to be a Fianna Fáil candidate. So they don't see anything wrong with that. And that basically Micheál Martin's grievances appear really to just be on the PR sense because this has somehow maybe undermined his talks with the SDLP and it may in fact prejudge or, or disrupt or result in all of those being collapsed. So that really Micheál Martin's grievance, as they see it, is just political, but that under the letter of the law, under party rules, they did nothing wrong. But of oh. course, Micheál Martin says that in fact the rules are not quite that cut and dried, that you are not compelled to be a Fianna Fáil candidate, even if you are a Fianna Fáil member, because if you live in a part of the world where Fianna Fáil is inactive, then obviously you can't be doing that. You couldn't have uh, a Fianna Fáil member who lives in Brussels suddenly running for Brussels town council or city council uh, as a Fianna Fáil councillor, because that wouldn't make any sense at all. So they say that the, the rules aren't quite that clear-cut, but that they have uh, dramatically undermined the ability of Fianna Fáil uh, to have talks with the SDLP that could result in them inheriting uh, dozens, if not maybe hundreds of councillors in the future, so that they see it then as a, a gross uh, rebellion. Now, What's very interesting about all of this as regards timing, uh, Michael, is that obviously mm. um, this uh, launch with Circa Mackinesby happened, uh, you know, two or three weeks ago. So you could ask why it's, it's taken this long for there to be proper disciplinary fallout. And maybe it's the case that the party was conducting some sort of um, internal inquiry first to see exactly who knew what and when. Um, but the very interesting thing is that Mark Daly's uh, suspension as uh, the deputy leader and as foreign affairs spokesman in the Senate was announced on Wednesday. But why did it take until yesterday for Eamon O'Keefe uh, to be sacked from the front bench? And it may in fact be, uh, again, a certain amount of PR because yesterday morning, around this time yesterday morning in the Dáil, Michael Ring was taking questions as the Minister for Rural Affairs. And if Eamon O'Keefe had been sacked as Fianna Fáil's spokesman on rural affairs, then there wouldn't have been anyone from Fianna Fáil in the door to debate and to put all those questions to uh, Michael Ring. So it may have been a convenient thing where, in fact, Eamon O'Keefe's uh, sacking was basically uh, confirmed or agreed upon on Wednesday, but it wasn't announced until yesterday because the party needed to make sure it didn't have an empty chair in the door yesterday morning. And there appears to be another theory flying uh, uh, around uh, as well, Gavin, uh, that uh, Fianna Fáil wasn't sure of the extent of Eamon O'Keefe's involvement in this. They knew that he had attended the event uh, but uh, it was thought that maybe he did so unknowingly in the respect of uh, Circa being launched as a Fianna Fáil candidate. Yeah, yeah, and it's worth bearing in mind again who the personnel are in, in this particular case because the apart of what the event at which Circa McInnesby was unveiled as a Fianna Fáil councillor or a council candidate was not actually supposed to be an election event at all. It was actually meant to be an event that she had organised uh, for her community about the impacts of Brexit and what could be done uh, to mitigate against that. And Eamon O'Keefe may have gone to that event thinking that it was only about Brexit and not about electoral matters. Now, Mark Daly has been banging the drum not only on a United Ireland but also on Fianna Fáil going north of the border for some time so it was considered um, unthinkable that he would have gone up not knowing what was happening and he certainly seemed to concede to Micheál Martin immediately that he went up knowing that he was going to be unveiling this election candidate contrary apparently to the wishes of party headquarters uh, but some suspicion that perhaps Eamon O'Keefe did not know but then when the when Eamon O'Keefe and Micheál Martin sat down on Wednesday night uh, it became very apparent very quickly that Eamon O'Keefe knew exactly what he was doing and it was on that basis that he's been uh, sacked from the front bench, which is, of course, mm. uh, by the way, the second time in six years that it's happened to him. Yeah, uh, the last time was over one of the European treaties, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the fiscal mm, compact yeah, referendum yeah. back in 2012, and he was sacked as deputy leader that time as well. Uh, and what we're talking about here is different interpretations, but if Eamon O'Quave and Mark Daly's opinion is correct, or if they believe it's correct, well, then they will also believe uh, that they've been treated unfairly. Now, that doesn't make uh, for uh, a good relationship. 
No, it, it doesn't. But I suppose that then it does raise questions as to why uh, they seem to both have taken their punishments on the chin quite so much. That in, in some ways, perhaps that they knew that they were uh, in keeping with the party's, you know, mm. overall long-term uh, objectives, but it wasn't in keeping with the party's short-term objectives. And then you can argue whether it's right to make a small sacrifice in, in one area to try and achieve things in another. But certainly, the way in which uh, Mark Daly seems, to, in particularly, um, to have taken his punishment on the chin—that he's no longer Fianna Fáil's deputy leader in the Shannon, or no longer its foreign affairs spokesman—he um, appears uh, on the face of it to completely accept that what he did uh, may in fact have been a breach of party rules even though they went ahead with the uh, mm. the launch uh, on that premise but I suppose it is a very delicate timing yep. um, not only obviously because those northern elections are now six months away and those talks with the SDLP are ongoing uh, but bear in mind the other talks ongoing at the moment are confidence and supply about whether to renew the, the relationship with Fine Gael that might avoid a general election until the summer of 2020 and obviously matters in the north and Brexit all have mm. their own parts to play in that but it is a time at which many inside Fianna Fáil are beginning to get very itchy fingers and that even though the uh, the opinion polls don't show them doing too well, that they are just desperate to break away from this loveless marriage with Fine Gael. And the idea now that you might have, uh, you know, growing fractures within the party where they might be fractured along other lines, but that anything that creates more divisions within the, in Fianna Fáil than are ultimately necessary uh, aren't exactly good news for Micheál Martin, given that no matter what they do, whether they decide to renew the deal or whether to break free, that it's going to leave a, a large number of people within the party very unhappy one way or another. Alright, some very interesting north-south politics there. Uh, some even more interesting north-south east-west politics, and uh, it uh, appears as though Theresa May is saying to the DUP, look, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. There's no way on earth it's going to happen, but I am going to uh, agree to putting a, a border down the Irish Sea. Yeah, because basically it, it seems now that Theresa May has said that it's basically it's this deal or no deal at all. I'm reminded actually of the old Eamon Gilmore slogan about it being Frankfurt's way or Labour's way. Either it, it now mm. seems as if that it's going to be no way at all or Barnier's way. And that's basically the position that Theresa May has found herself in, that she has basically said, yes, that the only deal that is on the table that is tenable for me to accept is a deal which could, in principle, although hopefully never in practice, result in Northern Ireland being treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom. But of course, the DUP, uh, as we know, don't tend often to work in practice so much as in principle. In the first place, they see themselves as being so British that it's an act of great betrayal or rebellion or sedition or whatever you like mm-hmm. to call it, uh, to countenance the idea of the North being treated differently to Britain. But um, I suppose this, again, is really where the, the practice of Brexit really clashes against the ideals of Brexit, that the ideals were that the UK could break away from the control of Brussels and that it could strike its own trading deals and control its own laws, um, never really realising that in practice you were never going to have all that much autonomy because even if you are entirely separate from the European Union, like, for example, Switzerland is or Liechtenstein or Iceland or other countries like that, if you want to trade with the European Union, you have to basically play by Europe's rules, whether you like it or not. And so, you know, the UK, Mm. you know, was sold this basically sold the pup thinking that they could break away and still have unfettered trading access, no borders, no nothing, uh, not realising that it was never in fact uh, practical. But, but much like the Fianna Fáil row, it's a case yep. of uh, idealism versus practical. Well, much like uh, the Fianna Fáil row, Theresa May is in the same position as Leo Varadkar, isn't she? And that if she wants to stay in office, uh, she relies on a confidence and supply agreement that she has with the DUP. Is it possible that Arlene Foster will pull the plug? 
Well, this is a really a bigger issue. And there was some reports in some of the Sunday papers a couple of weeks ago, which didn't get much pick up at the time, but may of which been when worth paying attention to. That basically there was a report in the Irish Mail on Sunday a couple of weeks ago that once the British budget was out of the way, which it now is, that Arlene Foster was basically going to be told, go and take a running jump, please. That Theresa May was going to say that I'm not going to be beholden to you anymore. Mm. And even if the DUP were to vote against this final deal when it came into Parliament, obviously it would mean huge difficulties for Theresa May because it could mean potentially the, the overall long-term collapse of her government. Um, but any deal that uh, likely gets the backs up of the DUP or a lot of other arch-Brexiteers, your, your uh, Boris Johnsons and Jacob Rees-Moggs, um, it is also likely to get an awful lot of support from the Scottish nationalists and from many people within Labour. So you could have Theresa May's government falling, but still this deal getting through the House of Commons. So it'll mean uh, pro- certainly end game and a likely general election one way or another. But it seems, yeah. based on those reports, that, uh, that Theresa May is prepared to face the DUP down on it. And it's a difficult position for the DUP, isn't it? Because uh, they could pull the plug on the Tories and side with Labour, but uh, they'd have to look at uh, Jeremy Corbyn's views on a united Ireland. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it. I don't think they would ever side with um, with Jeremy Corbyn, even there as some sort of confidence in his idea, because Jeremy Corbyn is, is a long-standing supporter of the United Ireland. But then, I suppose that that's where uh, the DUP doesn't have all the power that it likes. That in theory, it's able to hold uh, the Tories to ransom because they can uh, basically stipulate anything they want at risk of turfing Theresa May out of office. But they know that it's power they can never really wield because if they do uh, take Theresa May out of office, you have a general election and the serious prospect of Jeremy Corbyn perhaps being propped up. Uh, by the Scottish Nationalists, in which case you might be looking at uh, whatever about the United Ireland, you could be looking at another Scottish independence referendum and the UK fracturing through uh, altogether different means. So it certainly seems that uh, no matter mm. what way you turn, that all of this Brexit stuff could potentially mean some very significant consequences yeah. for the, the future of the UK one way or another. Very dramatic prospects. Thank you very much indeed, Gavin, uh, for that insight and for joining us here this morning. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a political correspondent or columnist, rather, with the Mead Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual around this time on Friday, for our review of the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our Parliamentary Correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Tuesday. Delays in the issuing of welfare payments to certain people around the country were raised by independent TD Thomas Pringle. In response, Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD for Mead East, Regina Doherty, said changes in technology caused the delays, but they have since been resolved. The change from a payment in arrears approach to a current week payment approach coupled with our new IT system which has very, very tightly defined rules, it's um, a very unforgiving system, led to payments being blocked altogether for reasons that might not have been applied to under the old manual human-led system. These issues caused major difficulties for many of our customers, leading to obviously a large number of calls to the Department Las Concolas helpline and obviously resulting then in long delays to responding to the calls My department has worked hard over the last few weeks to resolve the many issues that arose, including allocating additional staff to the illness benefit claim work and developing a number of IT modifications to identify and to rectify the payment issues. And I'm pleased to be able to say that the payment levels of illness benefit are now back to their normal levels. 
The removal of the X-ray room at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda by the HSE was raised in the Senate on Thursday. Labour Senator Jed Nash told the House that instead of downgrading X-ray facilities at the hospital, if anything, they needed to be upgraded. Plans to include a new X-ray facility at the newly expanded ED have been ditched in what appears to be a cost-cutting exercise. And to add insult to injury, this appears to have been a unilateral decision uh, that was taken without any consultation whatsoever with frontline staff at the hospital. The new section opened this week, but the bird is in effect flying on one wing. The space is there, and the full expectation uh, in relation to the original plan was that the new X-ray room would be provided, but it was pulled at the 11th hour. So now we have a spanking new uh, emergency department extension and draw it, but no additional X-ray room. The Lords needs a second X-ray room in ED. It's not too late in terms of the building project to revisit this. And for the sake of the €1 million Euro that I understand it would cost, the new X-ray room needs to be built and it needs to be built now. The same issue was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday when Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster told the Taoiseach that removing such a facility while plans are in place for an extension to the building are madness. Last week the HSE made a decision to remove the x-ray room from the the plans for the extension of the emergency department in Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Drogheda. Now those plans had been in place for 10 years. The, the x-ray room had been costed and included in the tender and medical professionals for years have been crying out for the need for a second x-ray room. Now Taoiseach, for the HSC to now say they're going ahead with an extension to an emergency department without an x-ray room is absolute pure madness. It's like building a house right. without you, a roof. Now, Taoiseach, did the Minister for Health or his department instruct the HSE to remove the x-ray room from the plans that were in situ for 10 years? And is he going to stand over that madness of a myopic mindset of senior HSE management, ignoring frontline staff? I'm quite sure that the Minister of Health made no such direction. It wouldn't be normal practice for a health minister to get involved in the detailed design of a hospital any more than an education minister would get involved in the detailed design of a university or a school. Uh, but I will uh, inform Mr Harris, who can't be here, he's in committee, that this issue was raised and ask him to provide you with a written answer. The Oireachtas Committee on Health met during the week to discuss the proposed legislation pertaining to abortion services. Independent TD for Meath West, Pather Tobin, told the meeting on Tuesday that he is opposed to taxpayers' money being made available for abortions and said such funding would mean less money for operations dealing with things like scoliosis. There are a lot of people, like myself, who have a conscientious objection to the issue and you know, freedom of conscience is an important element of our society uh, and people feel that... I suppose their tax money is going to pay for an operation that they, uh, they in their heart and soul, radically oppose. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why, and I, as I said earlier, I was surprised by the level of opposition to this element on the street when I went, met and talked to people on this. Outside, people do see that there is competing interests, as Deputy Durkin says, with regards, uh, there, but there's an, an opportunity cost. If you pay for 12 million euros for this, that €12 million Euros is not available for emergency school business operations. During the same debate, independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick asked if commercial abortion providers move to Ireland, will the taxpayer fund their profits? If commercial abortion clinics move to Ireland, will the Irish people then be funding their abortion profits? Uh, a survey also this morning, I look at him and I saw, a mocked research, which was done in August 2018, which, which had done a research of 1,000 people, 
59% opposed to taxpayers funding abortions, with 41% in favour. Also, Minister, it's interesting to see that 44% of the yes voters are opposed to taxpayers funding abortion. The procedures by which families are allowed to visit loved ones in residential care was highlighted in the Dáil on Wednesday by Fine Gael TD Fergus O'Dowd. Citing a recent Primetime Investigates TV programme and the story of Pat Fitzgerald, he said some patients are being treated as though they are prisoners in jail. Because Pat, who cared so much, not just about his wife, but about other people in Cherry Orchard, when he made a complaint and expressed concerns about another person who he felt was not being treated properly, he was barred from visiting his sick wife. He was barred from visiting her, as was his daughter. That is a shameful, disgraceful, arrogant, arbitrary act imposed on him and on his family. And it is denying to Anne Fitzgerald, the patient who lies in that bed, her natural human rights to be visited as they wish by her loved ones. The HSE and their wisdom give him one hour, one hour on some days, four days of the week that he's allowed him to visit his wife. And when the 60 minutes are up, a man comes to the door and knocks and says, it's time for you to go. It's been treated as if his wife, who he cares and he loves greatly, is in jail. A call was made on the government to formally fix the cost of water connection charges. Speaking during a private member's motion calling for more investment in water infrastructure, Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock said on Tuesday that homeowners in rural Ireland are always treated less favourably than those in towns and cities. There's a commitment that Irish water would have a flat charge of €5,600 for every water connection going forward. I have instances of people who have been charged 18000 for a simple water connection. That needs to be brought in immediately and not been put on the back burner as it is currently by Irish water. Uh, If we were to talk about equity, it is unfair that time and time again rural communities are subjected to boil water notices, whereas households with public display rarely have that inconvenience. If you live in the countryside with no public water passing within a short distance of your home and you have never been connected to a group water scheme, the issue of grants for wells and upgrading them needs to be enhanced and increased. During the same debate, Fianna Fáil TD for Meath West, Shane Castles, recalled a day last summer where issues with sewage in the River Boyne caused uproar in Navan. My own hometown of Navan has a population in excess of 32,000 people. But last summer we witnessed one of the most disgusting and disgraceful raw sewage discharges into the historic River Boyne, which runs through the heart of the town. And why? Because of a wastewater treatment plant that did not have enough capacity, and as a result, the pumping station sent the overflow straight into the river in the middle of the town. So this famous River Boyne, where the mythical salmon of knowledge was caught, was subjected to a planned discharge of raw sewage. And I can tell you, Minister, there weren't too many salmon caught in the river following that discharge. And if Fionn McCool had been swimming in the river that day, he would have choked. A call was made for a more determined push by the state to attract people into apprenticeships. Fianna Fáil TD Thomas Byrne told the Dáil on Wednesday that with the economy growing, there are huge opportunities out there for young people who wish to learn a particular skill. Work must begin now on ramping up the number of apprenticeships across the board in order to meet demand. For too long, the Irish education system has leaned on academic achievement as a way of career and development opportunity. And that's all of us. We all aspire for our children uh, to, to go to college, to get the diploma or the degree or whatever it is. But we've got to get that message out there that your level eight 
apprenticeship is a degree. Is a degree. It's exactly equivalent uh, to a degree, and it's another way of doing it. And if that message is out there and seeps in, uh, then things will change radically, and employers will also become uh, more interested. The time has come now to take apprenticeship seriously as a way of further boosting the economy. In preparation for the challenges that we face with Brexit and housing, and indeed in meeting the skill shortages in hospitality, healthcare, apprenticeships must be placed in the position that they deserve. And that contribution by Fianna Fáil TD from Mead the East, Thomas Byrne, concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. Ken Murray will have uh, another Loud Me the Oireachtas Report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. About 44% of uh, the people who are working in this country are in precarious employment. Uh, this is according to a report called Precarious Work, Precarious Lives, How Policy Can Create More Security. The author is Sinead Burke, who's a senior researcher with uh, the Think Tank Task and on the line with us. And I know there's a health warning on that figure of 44%, uh, Sinead. Uh, but perhaps uh, you'd begin by telling us uh, what precarious uh, employment is, uh, because uh, you say in your report there's no agreed official definition of precarious employment, but generally speaking, you're talking about people who are, are paid in jobs, uh, but are low paid, uh, have a high degree of uncertainty and limited social benefits. Um, yes, good morning, Michael. Absolutely. Um, so so basically, as, as the report states, there is no agreed definition, but what we can say is it's people on, say, fixed-term contracts, temporary contracts, uh, people on low-pay, low-hour work, zero hours, if and when, people with no uh, basic sort of benefits like sick leave, annual leave, uh, bogus self-employment, they're all included in uh, under precarious work. And when you talk about a figure as high as 44%, uh, you're not necessarily saying that that is the figure and you're basing it on some European data, but it is obviously a very uh, huge amount of people who are in these uncertain circumstances. Uh, You're not just talking about couriers or, or people in jobs that you'd normally associate with uncertainty. Absolutely, um, and and yes, as as as, I was, as we were saying, it is just an estimate. Um, what the European Parliament, a study conducted by the European Parliament, found is that actually every job, even permanent jobs, have a risk of precari- precariousness, of so being precarious. So as I was saying, having those characteristics. So that's what we were basing it on. And um, uh, yes, it's not just couriers. So obviously the gig economy is a word that's used a lot, but it's actually much bigger than the gig economy. That's just a small part of it. it there's university lecturers are included in this. We're talking about construction workers, um, childcare workers, healthcare workers. They're, they're, it's across the board in, in, in all sectors, even the public sector as well, which mm. traditionally has very good um, employment conditions. Okay, we're... Uh weeks out from Christmas. Uh, perhaps Keith Murdoff's uh, story uh, is one worth telling uh, this morning. People can uh, read his story in the Irish Times today. Um, absolutely, yes. And that story and, and you know, that was one of many stories that I heard and was so 
um, you know, that that's the kind of message that was coming out in all the interviews I conducted. So, like, this research that we have um, released, you know, it is based on people's testimonies, people's words. It's coming from the ground. And, you know, I was hearing things like that they couldn't pay to see a GP, which is a huge issue in this country because we don't have universal health care. Um, people couldn't afford childcare. They had to give up work even in order to, um, you know, to, to actually, to, because their, their wages just weren't paying it, you know, the precarious wage. Mm. Um, you know, the people couldn't plan their lives. And yes, um, you know, there's, like as, as Keith talked about, there's a, a shame attached to it. And, you know, work is supposed to pay. Work is supposed to get you out of poverty. And what we're finding with precarious work is that that's not the case and it's actually in deepening inequality levels. And, and Keith was working in a, a language school, an mm. English teacher uh, and probably should have been in a position uh, where many of uh, the problems were affordable for him but in the weeks running up to Christmas he was wondering when he'd actually get paid that he'd have the money that he had earned. Uh, yep. But uh, when he went looking for it uh, by texting a, a manager, he ended up getting a, a verbal warning for doing something as outrageous as looking for his uh, money for his wages. Absolutely. And that's actually a big problem with precarious work. It creates a kind of, a, um, you know, a fear amongst workers. Uh, when they're dealing, they're afraid to, say, take time off. They're afraid to stand up to their employers because, you know, they're so uncertain. They don't have security of hours or security of a contract. So an employer can simply just take those away or, yes, um, you know, fire, fire you essentially as well, which is like what Keith talks about in here today. Uh, and the impact of uh, this on people uh, personally uh, can be great. Um, but yes, um, and that's the thing when we talk about work. So you know, a lot of times we talk about work as if it's outside of our lives, mm. and it's actually that's what our our main finding is: is that it's having a huge impact on people's lives. Um, so people, for example, not choosing not to have children, and not because of their own personal wishes, but because they just simply can't because of the work they're in, you know, not being able to to pay the rent, you know, things like that. So it's having a huge impact on their lives. And that's why we're calling on the government to do something about this. Well, tell us how, because uh, your report points at a policy that can create more security. Yes, so we've come up with 32 recommendations and it's a combination of measures across multiple areas. Um, that are needed to address these. So three of these would include banning if and when contracts. The second would be raising the minimum wage and the third, so raising the minimum wage to the living wage and um, the third would be as Ireland is an outlier in having in not having universal access to primary health care. Uh, we're calling on um, the government to actually, you know, implement Slancha Care, which is a blueprint for this and also to implement universal childcare, because at the moment Ireland has low levels of investment in childcare. So we need services in order to help our workers as well. Okay, I suppose, uh, can't help but think, you may dream. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, we've had all these promises before, Slangicare uh, and all of the billions that's needed, universal access uh, to primary care, which is commonplace in other countries, uh, but obviously not uh, achievable in the short term in this country. Uh, and uh, um, we've been I promised a Scandinavian style of childcare. I, I, I don't know for how long, but certainly in the last five years. Well, I, it, it ta- it's going to take political will. It's also going to take people to actually, you know, tell tell the government that this is what they want. We need to be more outspoken on mm. this and actually, um, you know, calling on the government to implement these things. But if it was what people wanted, the government policies wouldn't be in place uh, or you'd have a different administration uh, putting in different policies. Well, this is the the issue that we found um, in our research. So, one thing, um, a message that was coming out, for example, through 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 the interviews, was that flexible working t- mm. conditions are great for the employer, but it means total uncertainty for me. And that's what we found with policy. Policy has been very much geared towards employers, and we are actually advocating and calling on the government to actually um, put workers before businesses when it comes to government policy. All right, Sinead. Look, thank you indeed for taking the time to be with us and for joining us on the programme this morning. Sinead Burke is Senior Researcher with the Think Tank Task and author of uh, that report on precarious employment and brings our programme to its conclusion today and indeed for this week. Before we go, let me remind you there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon if you'd like to listen back for some reason. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control chair. I'm Michael and God willing you'll join the team for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 